Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text today is the first commandment. I'll be reading from Exodus 20, the first three verses. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before my face. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we pray that you would teach us what it means to worship you and you alone. We pray that your spirit would be at work to expose the idols that we cling to and give us the grace to shatter them so that we may be disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ and worship you alone through him. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the Bible, the Ten Commandments, what we know as the Ten Commandments, are called the Ten Words. You'll find the phrase Ten Commandments in your Bibles, but it's not actually in the text of the Bible. You'll find it on the headings at the top of your page. You might find it as a heading within your Bible, introducing Exodus 20, for example. But never does the Bible call this set of words the Ten Commandments. It does call them the Ten Words. And part of the reason for that is that the ten words include more than commandments. In fact, there are more than ten commandments in what we call the Ten Commandments. And there are many more words than ten words. But the ten words include not only commandments, but they also include exhortations, rationale for the commandments. Why should I obey this commandment? God gives us warnings. God gives promises. The Ten Commandments are not merely commandments, they are the Ten Words. And so, if I keep my wits about me through this course of this sermon, I will use the phrase Ten Words rather than Ten Commandments. I sometimes slip into traditional language. But the Bible itself calls these the Ten Words. The Ten Words begin with a little snippet of narrative. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That first word that introduction or preface, as the Westminster Larger Catechism calls it, is specifically attached to the first commandment, to the first word. Why should we have no other gods before Yahweh, the God of Israel? Why should we worship no other gods or have no other gods before his face? It's because he is our savior, because he brought Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Because of that, because of this saving act, we are to have no other gods before God. That's specifically attached to the first word, to the first commandment, but it really infuses the entirety of the ten words. That little bit of narrative about the Exodus, that summary of the Exodus story, is not just telling us why we should serve and obey and worship only the one God. It's also the reason why we serve God and worship God without images, why we bear his name uh, with the weight it deserves, why we keep Sabbath, why we honor our parents, why we don't kill or commit adultery or steal or bear false witness. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, is the rationale for God speaking to his people as Lord and organizing their entire life, the individual life of every Israelite, and the corporate life of the nation as a whole, according to these words. Because God has saved Israel, because he's redeemed them from the house of bondage, this is the way they're supposed to live. Exodus is not merely a distant memory for Israel. Exodus is supposed to shape their entire life. They're supposed to be an Exodus people. Their life together as a nation 
is supposed to display and proclaim the reality of the Exodus. They bear the name of God with the weight it deserves because Yahweh bore them on eagles' wings out of Egypt. They're supposed to keep and give rest on the Sabbath because Yahweh gave them rest from the house of bondage. They're supposed to honor their parents because Yahweh is the father of Israel and every father or mother in Israel has authority only because they reflect and symbolize the authority of the father of Israel. They're not to kill because Yahweh is the God of life. They're not to commit adultery because Yahweh is the God who is faithful to his bride and who rescued his bride from slavery. They're not to steal because God is a God of giving. God gives rather than takes. They're not to bear false witness because God is truth. They're not to covet because God fulfills all our desires. Their entire life is supposed to be shaped by the Exodus. This narrative of the Exodus, the little snippet This summary of the Exodus is a story of freedom. Once upon a time, Israel was in the land of bondage, the house of bondage, under Pharaoh's uh, thumb, under his heel. But God liberated Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This is a story of freedom. Exodus is a story of liberation. And then they come to Sinai. They come to Sinai and God introduces himself as the God who liberated them from bondage and then proceeds to restrict them in all kinds of ways. I'm the one who saved you from bondage. I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. Now, don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this. Some freedom, we might think. Yeah, Exodus is all about liberation. The Exodus is about freeing Israel from bondage, freeing us from bondage. These are our people. But Sinai is just a new form of slavery. We've exchanged slavery in Egypt for slavery to Yahweh. He's a lot more powerful, and he's a lot more, he can scrutinize us. His surveillance techniques are much more penetrating than anything Pharaoh could have come up with, or Google, or whoever's surveilling us these days. What kind of freedom is this? What does it mean to be a free people when we have to obey all these restrictions? This offends us as moderns or postmoderns or whatever we are. It offends us to think that our freedom can be restricted in any way. Freedom means freedom to do whatever we like. And if somebody tells us that we can't do this and can't do that, then how can we say that we're free? In the context of the ancient world, the Exodus truly is a liberation. And the first word and all the words are words of freedom. This is a declaration of independence. Thou shalt have no other gods before my face is a declaration of independence for Israel. It's a command to them to walk in the freedom that they've been given at the Exodus. Imagine what it was like to live in the ancient world, believing you were surrounded by dozens, hundreds, thousands of deities. All of them want something from you. They're not particularly reliable characters, you know from the stories of classical gods, that the gods engage in all kinds of infidelity, uh, they, trick their, they trick their subjects, they trip them up, they look for opportunities to uh, take them down a notch or two because they don't want these human beings to get too uppity, they don't want them to pretend that they're gods, they have to protect their turf and so they'll take down people if they get too exalted. 
You've got these unreliable gods who are looking for opportunities to trip you up, and there are thousands of them. Try pacifying all of them. Try making sure that you're on good terms with every single one of them. You can't possibly do it. If you're worshiping Jupiter, then you're probably offending somebody else. And if you start worshiping somebody else, then Jupiter wants that attention. You can't possibly serve them all. They make contradictory demands. You're scrambling around trying to satisfy all these gods. And that was Israel's condition in Egypt. They were not just political slaves to Pharaoh. They had begun to worship the gods of Egypt. That's what Joshua tells us at the end of the book of Joshua in the final speech that he gives to Israel before his death. He reminds them that they were once idol worshipers back across the river, beyond the river, in Ur of the Chaldees before Abram was called out to the land he had never seen. They were idolaters then. And they were idolaters in Egypt. Remember that you are idolaters in Egypt and don't go back there, Joshua says. And the Lord comes not just to deliver them from Pharaoh, who is himself a kind of deity in Egypt, but he comes to deliver them from all these thousands of gods that are making their claims on Israel. He's liberating them to live before him, one God, only one God to please. That's liberating, that's freeing. The Bible describes the condition of idolatry as a condition of death. To worship idols is to become inert, just like the idols are. Idols have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear your prayers. They have noses, but they can't smell your incense or your sacrifices. They have mouths, but they're not really going to speak to you. They have feet, but they can't come to help you. They have hands, but they can't really move their hands. They can't stretch out their mighty arm in order to save you. Several Psalms describe idols this way. Idols are dead. Idols are inert. And then go on with this warning. So are all those who worship them. You worship idols and you become blind. You worship idols and you become death. You worship idols and your speech become confused. You worship idols and you're on your way to death. When the Lord came to Israel in Egypt to liberate them, not just from Pharaoh, but from the idols of Egypt, he came to bring them up from the grave. The Exodus is not just a liberation story, it's a resurrection story. The first word, thou shalt have no other gods before my face, is not just telling them don't go back to the gods of Egypt, it's telling them don't go back to the grave, walk in the way of life, walk in resurrection life. Now that you're raised from the dead, stay in the way of life. Well, this is a command that was essential for Israel. Israel had gone into Egypt and begun to worship the gods of Egypt. They needed to be told, don't go back to those gods. They needed this. Surely we don't. We don't be, need to be reminded that there's only one God. We know that. We don't need to be reminded to worship only the one God. We don't have any shrines in our basements to Baal or Molech or Jupiter or Allah. We don't invoke other gods in our prayers. We don't think we need this anymore. Or we might be tempted to think that this was for Israel but not for us. But I want to suggest that we're just as much idolaters and in fact polytheists as ancient Israelites were. And the gods that we try to serve, the gods that we try to please, 
are just as demanding and just as contradictory and just as enslaving and just as deadly as the gods that Israel worshipped in Egypt. The commandment actually says, you shall have no other gods before my face. And specifically, that means you shall have no other gods before my face in the sanctuary. The most explicit example we have in the Old Testament of somebody violating this commandment is, the king, is King Manasseh, the worst king ever in the southern kingdom. Manasseh placed an image of a false god right, in the, right in the, before the face of God inside the temple. Manasseh put an other, another god before the face of God, very literally violating this first word. But of course, Israel wasn't free to worship other gods and serve other gods elsewhere. As long as they did it in the privacy of their own homes, it wasn't okay to do it in the privacy of their own homes. As long as they didn't do it right in the face of God in the temple, no, that's not the way it worked. The Old Testament actually introduces the idea of idols of the heart. In Ezekiel 14, the Lord warns Ezekiel the prophet, the elders are coming to you for advice. They're seeking, they pretend to be seeking my word from you. But they come with their, with their hearts full of idols. They set up idols before, they've set idols in their hearts. And when they come before you, or when they come before me, the Lord says, they bring their idols with them. If you've got an idol in your heart and you come into the temple precincts, you're bringing a, another god before the face of God just as surely as Manasseh did. Nobody can see it except God. Nobody knows that you've done it, but you've brought your idols before the face of God. And if anything, this is intensified in the New Testament. Our hearts are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. You yourself are a temple of the Spirit. Jesus dwells in you. And if you serve and worship and cultivate idolatry in your hearts, then you're putting a false god before the face of God. Because that's where God is. God is in you and among you. And when you gather here, if you're cultivating idols in your heart, they're right here with you before the face of God. What kind of idols might we be clinging to? Luther said that this commandment requires us to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That's the positive import of the first word. Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Do you fear anything more than you fear God's displeasure? At any point in your life, do you love something more than you love pleasing God? Did you, do you place your trust in anything other than God for your health, for your salvation, for your future? Then you're violating the first word. Isaiah says that the Lord, Yahweh, is our judge. The Lord, Yahweh, is our savior. The Lord, Yahweh, is our lawgiver. If we set up another judge, if we fear another judge's judgment against us, if we're looking anywhere else for salvation, for health, for safety, if we're listening to any other voices than the voice of God, We've set up idols. Whose judgment do you really fear? Who are you really worried about displeasing? A hypercritical parent 
your friends at school? Are you fearful of being judged uncool? That's the way of slavery. What's uncool today is going to be cool tomorrow and vice versa. You can't possibly please everyone. You're going to be pulled here and there by the demands of coolness. And if, you are, if uh, your view of yourself is dependent on whether you have a right standing before your peers, then you're constantly going to be having to catch up. You're going to be out of fashion. You can't catch up. It's a form of slavery. And that's a false god. God is your judge. Not your peers. Not public opinion. As much as we want to have the good opinion of our parents, your parents are not your judges. God is. And if you're fearing some other judge, some other assessment, than the assessment of the living God, then you should pull out that idol and shatter it and be free of it. Keep the first word. Have no other judges before the face of God. God is our Savior, Isaiah says. God is the one who brings health and blessing and prosperity. Have you ever had the passing thought? Perhaps someone in this room has had the passing thought, if only we could get over this financial hump, just a little bit more money and everything would be good. My marriage would magically improve if we had a little bit more money. My kids would magically be a little more responsive to me if we had a little more money. My life would be good if I just had money. Have you ever been tempted like that? Jesus gave a name to that idol. That's mammon. And he said, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't put your trust in money. You can't put your trust in goods for your present happiness, for your future. If you do, you're setting up an idol in your heart. Pull it out, shatter it. Remember that God is your savior. Have you ever when cornered by a husband or wife, shifted blame back to the person who was challenging you? Have you ever made a scapegoat of somebody instead of admitting your own fault? Maybe nobody in this room has ever experienced that. I suspect that many have. We don't like to confess our own sins. And we don't think... I'll confess my sins, lay my burdens on Jesus, and Jesus will bear my sin. I'm going to make sure that my accuser bears my sin. I'm going to turn my wife or my husband into my scapegoat, my sin bearer. I can't do it. They're not your savior. They're not the sin bearer. Jesus is. And insofar as you're relying on somebody else to take the blame of your sin, you have made an idol of that person. You've made that other person the sin bearer and the scapegoat. Jesus is the only scapegoat. Stop doing that. That's idolatry. Shatter that idol. Remember that God is your Savior. God is our only lawgiver, Isaiah says. Whose voice runs in your head? Whose word do you actually listen to? If you were to evaluate your life and look at your actual actions rather than what you profess to believe, who is your actual Lord and lawgiver? And when push comes to shove, who are you inclined to obey? Where do those voices come from? Those voices in your head that place demands on you? 
That might be your hypercritical parent still scolding you. It might be something you picked up on the internet, who knows? It might be those friends teaching you how to act instead of listening to the Lord. If you have another voice that overrules the voice of the Lord, who overrules the voice of Jesus, then you have an idol, and you need to shatter that idol, and you need to obey the first word, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You see, we, can't, we cannot be free. We cannot be free unless we shatter these idols. For us, Paul says, there is one God, one, one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one voice that we listen to. There is one Savior that we look to, one sin bearer, one judge. And when we really obey the first word and really put no other gods before the living God, then our lives can take on a coherence and a liberty that they can't possibly have otherwise. We're polytheists, and we try to please many gods, and we get pulled in all kinds of different directions. It's because we aren't worshiping and serving the one God, the living God. The first word, as I said, is a declaration of independence for us as well as for Israel. Lent is a season for self-examination. It's a good season to take stock of the idols, to spend some time looking through the temple of your heart as Ezekiel looks at the temple in Jerusalem and see how many images there are painted on the walls, how many things you have to scrape out and bring out and shatter in the valley next to your temple. Get rid of them. Look to God as your judge, your savior, your lawgiver. Well, at least we think, we might think, at least in our up-to-date modern world, we don't have any public idols. We might treasure some private idols, might be worshiping some private idols, but at least we don't have any idols in public. In fact, our whole system is based on not having any gods of any sort, whether a true God or a false God, at the heart of our system. We have no gods, and we can't have public idols. But of course, our culture is just as polytheistic as any ancient culture. If Paul were to walk through our cities, he would be as offended by the idols as he was offended by the idols of Athens. Remember when he's strolling around Athens and every street corner has an idol. Every street corner has a shrine. I see, he says, you are very religious people. You worship many, many gods. And so do we. And these gods don't just shape our individual lives, but they shape our public life. What runs the marketplace? I mean, what really runs the marketplace? You can see all kinds of good things, of course, that go on the marketplace. But our economy is set up so that we continue to grow the economy, so that we continue to get richer. Our economy is set up so that we serve the god Mammon. That's the way that the world is supposed to work. And Christians begin to believe that, yeah, I can go along with that. In my economic life, in my business life, I'll be a Mammon worshiper. My private life, my church, of course, I'll be a, a worshiper of the living God, but mammon, is, mammon, governs the, uh, mammon governs my business life. Mammon is our savior. We look to mammon to maintain the health of the society, or we look to a politician who's going to keep the uh, gross national product going, uh, growing, 
that politician becomes our savior because he's going to keep the wealth going. We have public idols like the command to follow your heart, the command to choose whatever you like as long as it's a free choice, to do whatever you like in public or private as long as it's consenting between two adults. We have our idols, our authorities, our authoritative voices that tell us how to organize our lives together. We have our judges. We think we're going to be judged by history. We think our uh, contamination of the world is going to be judged by Mother Nature. We think that nature is going to take its revenge on us because we haven't properly paid attention to Mother Nature. We have our public gods just as much as any ancient culture did. And these public gods are as jealous as any ancient gods were. They don't like to share glory. You know, the Roman world was pretty tolerant. The Roman world was uh, willing, the Romans were willing to incorporate conquered deities into their pantheon. They keep expanding the pantheon because they keep conquering new territories. And every new territory they conquered, they would bring in the gods of that territory into their pantheon. It's part of the deal. People are happy to do that because then they get their gods right next to the Roman gods. There is some evidence that this deal was offered even to Christians. We'll put Jesus in the pantheon. Just add him. And then everybody can be happy. We're so tolerant we can, we can, we can accommodate Jesus among our gods. Isn't that a good deal for Christians? It certainly would be a safe deal. But the Christians, of course, refused. And tolerant Rome turned out to be not so tolerant to a people who insisted on keeping the first word. That's what was going on in the persecutions in the Roman world. Christians refused to worship the emperor. They refused to worship the gods of Rome. They broke the social contract of Rome, which is a contract between Rome and its gods. And when they refused to worship the gods of Rome, the Romans had to purge them out because they were going to spoil the whole deal. They were going to undermine the whole empire just because they're keeping the first word, because they're worshiping the one God. The Christians were on an inevitable collision course with the apparently tolerant culture of Rome because they kept the first word. The one thing the tolerant Romans could not tolerate was the intolerance of Christians who said, your gods are nothings, they are demons, and our God is the only God. That can't be tolerated. That can't be accommodated in a polytheistic world. It can't be accommodated in our polytheistic world either. If we really keep the first word, if we really worship no other God but the living God, the God of the Exodus, the God who freed Israel from Egypt and freed us from death in the resurrection of Jesus, if we really serve that God, we're on a collision course with our culture. But there's a deeper reason why we're on a collision course with our culture. The first word is, you shall have no other gods before my face. And Israel keeps that word by worshiping Yahweh alone. But they also keep that word by cleansing the land of other gods. The whole book of Joshua, you could say, is a large-scale uh, obedience 
with some disobedience, but mostly obedience to the first word. God said, I, thou, shalt have, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and when you go into the land, there shall be no other gods before me in the land. Destroy their shrines, push, pull down their, their uh, pillars, smash their images, purge the land of idolatry. The first word is a mission statement. The first word is a declaration of war on the idols. Because we are not content as Christians just to be left alone to worship the true God by ourselves. We want the world to worship the true and living God. We want everyone to obey the first word, to have no other gods before them. Jesus is the new Joshua. Jesus keeps the first word not just by avoiding idolatry, which of course he does. He serves his father alone, even when it leads to his cross. But Jesus wasn't simply avoiding idolatry. Jesus, was come, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which means he came to shatter all the idols, to deliver us from idolatry, to deliver the world from its enslavement to idols. Jesus is the new Joshua, and he enlists us in his, uh, in his mission, in his conquest. And we're called to cast down every vain imagination, everything that exalts itself against the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to use the spiritual weapons the Lord has given us to carry out this same mission, the mission of Joshua in the land, the mission of Jesus now throughout the world. There's going to be a collision. There can't help but be a collision if we're really keeping the first word because this is a declaration of war on the idols. But the first word is also, I think, a pledge from God. It's not just a command, don't you have any other gods before my face. It's not just a mission statement, get rid of all the idols, cast down the idols using the spiritual weapons of the gospel, the spiritual weapons of prayer, the spiritual weapons of worship, service, and so on. Cast down the idols. But it's also a pledge that the Lord will have his world. He's not going to let any corner of this world, he's not going to cede any of it, concede any of it to other gods. Thou shalt have no other gods before my face means not only don't worship other gods, cast down your own individual idols and cast down the idols around us, but it's also God's pledge that he will have a world in which every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be a world where God, the living God, the God of Exodus, is all in all. There will be a world. It's the world that God is making now. He's making it through us. There will be a world in which there is no other God before the face of the living God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you who came to destroy the works of the devil, to shatter the idols that we cherish and worship, to expose them and to extract them from us. We pray that your spirit would be at work in us to expose our idolatries and to give us the strength to break the idols and to serve you only. And we praise you too that the Lord Jesus, as the new Joshua, is on a mission to clear your world of all pretenders, of all false gods. Pray that you would give us grace by your spirit 
so that we would join that mission, that we that would be faithful soldiers in the army of Jesus, casting down all vain imaginations until there is a world where there are no other gods before your face. We pray this in the, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.